Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Hello and welcome to episode 113. My guest today is Justin Harrison, and he is using AI to copy his mother. Okay, I've clearly got to explain that. Justin is the founder and CEO of YOV, which is using AI to create virtual personas, he calls them personas, designed to emulate the personality of someone important to you. In his case, it's his mother. And all this is very well explained in the interview. So let's get right into it. All right. So Justin Harrison, welcome to AI and You. Thanks for having me, Peter. I appreciate it. So you've got a story that's really important behind how you got into this work that I think we want to hear first. Uh, it seems it started with two significant events in your life back in 2019. Yeah, yeah. 2019, maybe the last good year we've experienced as a human race for a while. But yeah, it was a rough ending to that year. I got into, in October of 19, I got into a near-fatal motorcycle accident. Just coming home from work, normal day. I got hit by somebody who ran a stop sign and I almost died. I was in trauma for two weeks and then I was in a rehab center for another week and a wheelchair. I was wheelchair bound for quite some time. In the process of recovering from that, my mom got diagnosed with stage four cancer. And so a lot of near death and sort of the idea of mortality being thrown in my face all at once. And then of course, tracking the timeline there, that was about December, she got her diagnosis. Maybe two or three months later, the pandemic really goes into full swing. So the idea for a pretty healthy 36-year-old to being in a hospital with tubes in my neck and then my mom, who had always been pretty healthy my whole life now having terminal cancer, and then really the whole world being confronted with death, 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 and really I think everybody sort of collectively being afraid of that, it became ever-present in a way that it never was before. And that's kind of what kicked off this journey that you've has now become. It's got to feel like you were being stalked by the Grim Reaper there. <laughs> I definitely felt that he was doing his best to get my attention, that's for sure. And you did something with that. So what was the path, the transition between the feelings that these events generated in you and the decision to do something about it? Well, I think I've always been a tech person in terms of utilizing the latest tech and wanting to know what's happening in technology. And I'm, I'm very much of the mindset that technology will set us free and it is the solution to all our problems, even the problems that we haven't started applying it to. And so for me, the biggest out of all those issues, the motorcycle accident was obviously huge and the pandemic was also obviously huge, but I was raised by a single mother. It was just her and I am an only child. That was the biggest glaring thing for me. And I turned to technology. What can I do? Not just in terms of posthumous communications, where, which is where I went myself, but medical technology as well. And I started on this journey of finding out how I could preserve her. I'm a believer in the practice of cryogenics. I see the long-term future use of doing that. But 
that had always been sort of a comforting feeling to me before I was confronted with my mom's mortality. And it wasn't going to be enough. You know, she's frozen and maybe someday we can reanimate her mind and I can have a conversation with her again. That was, that sort of far off thought wasn't enough for me. So I started looking at how could I do this digitally? I'm a millennial and my parents actually live up near you. They're in Seattle. And so I, most of my relationship, most of my meaningful interaction with them is digitally. It's FaceTime, it's text messaging, it's phone calls. And so I went out and I was like, who's doing some kind of digital legacy or digital avatar where I can continue to interact with my mom in some way. And there just wasn't anything out there that met sort of the idea in my head and even felt like it would help offset that void in any meaningful way to me. And so I said, to hell with it. We're in a pandemic. I'm working from home for the first time in my professional career. I'm going to start tinkering with this and see what I can do. I see. And what was the result? Well, I mean, with all technology, you have one idea in your head and then it definitely evolves and it has evolved considerably in these two years. But what I decided is I started looking at artificial intelligence as an option. I have a bit of a psychology background. And, you know, one thing I was pretty keen on in the early days is understanding that whatever this thing I end up creating, it needs to be able to learn on its own. It defeats the purposes of having conversations with something that has a fixed subset of information. It's always going to be the same. My mom remains in a time capsule and we can only talk about 2019 and below. So that's not very helpful for me. So I understood that unless I was going to hire a full-time engineer to just walk next to me all day and continue to add code into my mom's data set and keep updating it, that AI needed to be involved, that we needed to be able to have some open parameters within the technology to allow for it to keep learning. And then from there, really, I think sort of the light bulb aha moment for me was as I started talking and researching what other people were doing, what I realized is that what AI was being used for wasn't necessarily what I wanted to use it for in this context. And what I mean by that is that everybody seemed very focused on the idea of gathering factual data or archival data or building in right answers, if you will. And I didn't necessarily care about that. For me, it was how my mom answered. For me, it was about the feeling that it was really her I was speaking to, not whether or not it knew the information she knew. And of course, there's an importance to that, right? But so when I was looking at existing technologies to sort of model after, I couldn't find anything that made sense for me. And that's when I started recruiting much smarter minds than mine to help me think through this concept of how do we build the essence of a person, not a fact bot or whatever, you know, not Mm. not something that can pull data for me. Of course, ultimately is pulling data, but hopefully you get what I mean by that. Yeah, and that's a key distinction because I've got on a window over on the side here, William Shatner nodding at me and from Storyfile where I can ask a question and he will answer from his history, but they suggest things like, tell me a story from your childhood or how did you start acting? And these are things that he's already recorded for them. So it is generating like a search engine based on that text from a lot of information that he's provided them, and then they're animating this avatar. You've taken a different kind of approach here. You talk about getting the essence, and I take it you don't want to stop with your mom. You're looking at doing this for other people's moms and dads and people, right? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we're looking to release this technology to market in the next year, for sure. But the goal is what you're describing, even with the William Shatner program that you're using it, I mean, 
all of it seems to come back as like Wiki William or Wikipedia my mom. Like here's a set of facts that are going to remain the same until somebody adds something new. And mm-hmm. that just wasn't the point for me. And I can kind of furthermore, when I was thinking about building somebody's essence, again, with the psychology background, my mind went to Myers-Briggs and Rorschach. And how can we sort of analyze and then set what my mom's universal personality was? And that doesn't work either in my mind, because we really show up differently for different people. My mom's interactions with me are markedly different than her interactions with my dad mm-hmm. and with my aunt and with her friends. And we're different people with different people. I mean, that's part of the human experience. That's the dynamicism of humans. We're not our personality. We're thousands. I have a slightly different personality with you than I have with anybody else now after 10 minutes. So it was really about a big focus of mine became on training the program to search for intangibles that created the essence of my mom and my my dynamics. And forget about everything else. Don't overload it with information that's not helpful. Sure, she's got a story that she tells to my dad all the time, but she's never told to me because it doesn't matter. So I don't need that fact in there. I don't need that information. It's not important. She wouldn't offer that up to me. And then, you know, a lot of other elements that make something more authentic and more genuine. So Hmm. things that other companies and other engineers that I knew of weren't focusing on as, quote, important data points because they didn't add to this sort of, again, like Wikipedia database for an individual or for a product or whatever the existing technology had been focused on collecting. So, Mm -hmm. you know, a small example of that that's out there that I use a lot is like, the timing of texts, the timing of messages, the timing of phone calls, how that it's not about, again, it's not about the words. Holistically, it's not just about the words. It's still important. It can't be gibberish. But if my mom's cadence and the timing and the volume in which she was responding to me match what I was expecting from her, that was more important to me in a lot of ways than the accuracy of what she was saying. Right. So you're saying that what you have created is your mom in the context of you, Justin, not anyone else. And is the interaction audio, video? What is part of the experience? So the user journey right now is text-based, but that is by design. So it's really important for me personally that when people start using this, that it's authentic and genuine. This is easily one of the most sensitive pieces of technology somebody will ever use, trying to connect you with somebody that you love that's passed away. So whereas we have patents on it and we theoretically have the capability to do it, I've stayed away from the audio just now. That'll probably come out next year. And real-time rendering and the video capabilities around CGI and deepfake and stuff has a little bit to go before I would feel confident using it to have a real-time conversation with somebody, especially when it's not pre-recorded, it's generating in the moment. So right now it's text-based, and right now we're constantly trying to refine. And it it's interesting is that I don't have a set date we're going to release to the general public to start utilizing these, because it has to be a feeling thing. It has to feel right. So when it feels right with me and my mom, then I know that the sauce is there Mm. and that this is ready to start learning for other people. But I don't want to expose anybody and have it be a traumatic experience. Right. So how do you get that? You've used words like authenticity and several times essence. It's not a metric that I have seen. It's not like I would say, well, this conversation here is 93% essence and we turn up this dial and we can get to 94 
but you've got to do something like that to get where you're going, right? Yeah, yeah. It's complex and it's subjective. At the end of the day, I think for me, that's why I'm case study one. Because when I'm communicating with my mom's persona and I'm like, this feels indistinguishable for me, I will know that it's ready. At the end of the day, it is all about patterns and it's all about data. And it's all about how many patterns we can draw out of the data we're collecting. And so when the secret sauce is right for me and my mom, the secret sauce will be right for everybody. And then we'll obviously we'll continue to write. It'll never be perfect. No technology should ever be looked at as done. Mm -hmm. But I think when it feels right for me and my mom, it means that I've hit enough data points and we've identified enough patterns that the authenticity is at a place that I feel comfortable letting other people use. We have more case studies besides just me and my mom, but it's all internal right now. And I'm sorry this wasn't clear to me earlier. Is your mom still with us or not? She is, yes. Thankfully. What does she think of this? Well, she's my mom, so she's always going to say something. Good job, son. I'm proud of you. It's interesting. I think it's definitely, I mean, there's probably no greater compliment I can pay to her that I started a tech company and invented a new technology because I care about her so much and I care about being able to interact with her. I think it's strange for her to watch herself talk. For the listeners, I just did air quotes around it. Talk to her in front of her, which I've done a couple of times. But I think by and large, it... I think she rests in the comfort of knowing that she'll be there in some capacity to comfort me and guide me and and still be there for me even after she goes. So what does the iterative process look like? You go and you have a conversation with virtual mom and something feels off. What do you do about it? What needs to be dialed up or down? You know what's really cool about human beings, and this is one of those biological imperative things, we're so much more observant than we realize. If we're talking to somebody in person, we pick up on all the body language, even if we're not cognitively at that moment conscious of the fact that we're processing this information. What's nice and in, in the reason why we're starting in a tiered approach, we start with text and then we'll graduate to audio, then video, is it becomes much easier to identify what feels off. So for me, timing was a big thing right out of the gate. Okay, it said the right thing, but she either took too long to respond or responded too fast. When you're starting from the ground up like this, it's everything. She's not using enough emojis in her messages. She hasn't said LOL enough. She doesn't seem as sort of cheery as she should at this time of the day against how she should at another time of the day. And so, you know, we send it back through a data set. I'm using five years of my mom's text messages and about six months of phone calls uh, transcribed in order to fuel her data set. So, It's about repointing it, but typically you notice what's wrong. You notice right out of the bat, like somebody wouldn't say this like this, or why did it respond so slow or so fast? Or you you tend to just notice what doesn't feel right. And it's thus far been very clear, like, oh, this doesn't feel right. Now, I'm excited for when we get to the point where it becomes an abstract thought. "Mm, Something feels off, but we're not entirely sure what it is. But for the most part, it's it's pretty in your face. You know, it Mm -hmm. makes sense pretty quickly. And you call this a versona, is that right? Correct, yep. And has your mom's versona surprised you in good ways? A couple of times, yeah. Mine and my mom's text communications are oftentimes pretty funny. So I've had a few chuckles. I think that it's fun. One thing that I wanted to focus on is really this idea that it's not always going to have an answer for me or know what I'm talking about for whatever reason. Maybe she didn't know that. Maybe we never communicated. There's tons and tons of things that don't make it into the data. So a lot of times the response to not knowing is funny, you know? Mm. 
And that was something I actually put a lot of thought into when thinking about how personas respond to not knowing is being able to tell somebody you don't know something in the way they would tell you. Hmm. And the way my mom would tell me she doesn't know is oftentimes kind of funny. So yeah, that does happen. I think there's some other elements where I've been caught off guard when there is a response to something kind of sensitive for me that I had triggered in and I wasn't preparing to be thinking about that in a moment. You know, I was in a very sort of R&D mindset, like, Mm. let me fire off this question and then something gets brought up that I wasn't prepared for. When you're dealing with human emotion, there's a there's a lot of surprises. And it's difficult sometimes for me to be one of the researchers because it is directly about me. So you haven't been tempted to dump Wikipedia into it so that mom knows a capital of Tajikistan and everything else? No, no, no. And that's how a lot of the chatbots now are trained by putting something like Wikipedia or the common crawl into a transformer. So does your mom's conversations become the corpus for something like a transformer? Yeah, everything is driven by... So for us, it's a less is more type of approach, if that makes sense. We don't want other data that isn't directly tied to our relationship sort of motivating any of the processes because that's when you start to drip. And we've tried. We've definitely tried. So I, the first thing I did was I did sort of her version of Wikipedia, which is I interviewed her. I had her interviewed about her entire life. I came out and I, I sort of modeled after like old school Q&A maker. What's every question I could think that you should have an answer to, right? That confused the process. I think it has a place later down the road to answer your question. And we're working on something called uh, enhanced knowledge, which is where we'll actually feed outside sources of data into the Versona set but not until we've really established the dynamics that matter. And as you're fully aware of, if you're setting something out to learn as many different patterns and recognize as many different sort of consistencies and ways of doing things within a data set, you don't want to feed it outside data. You don't want it to have something that isn't directly tied to how her and I interact. There's lots of great programs out there that can do crawls and search and give you good data. I mean, there's millions of them. But what we want to do is present the data back in a way that this individual tailored dynamic would give it to you. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that's about staying focused and staying contained within how do her and I interact and just keep coming back to that. And when it feels like that process is really refined, then we'll start feeding it other things, but it will still always know You come back to this initial data set. You come back to this initial way of doing things, I should say. And this is obviously a very personal, and by definition, the whole conversation is very, very personal to you, that there is a goal that's very personal to you in mind here. I'm reminded of some other people that have pursued similar goals. Ray Kurzweil talks about his father. Martin Rothblatt has done something uh, similar What experience is it that you are looking for with the virtual mom? I mean, at the core of it is every experience that I would have with her if she was here still when she's gone. I mean, I want to replicate our relationship as best that I possibly can. At the end of the day, that's my core motivation. You will always know, though, that it's not her. How do you resolve that tension? Well, I think that's actually probably when I'm not talking to sort of tech-minded people, that's sort of the biggest piece of pushback that I get 
is yeah, but it's not real. Yeah, but it's not real. Yeah, but it's not real. Well, for me, that's not true. At the end of the day, a brain is the world's most advanced computer and a personality is shaped by the data that that brain has collected. And that's it. And so at the end of it, for me, if I could take out a small subset or, you know, a big subset, I'm her son, her only child. So it's a big subset of her personality. But if I can take out one subset of her personality, the one that matters to me, and we can do our job and do our due diligence and continue the refinement process, then I would argue that what I get from that relationship is not different. It's not fake. I mean, essentially, even with you, you could be an artificial intelligence program right now for me. And I have no baseline for you. So I wouldn't even know if it was authentic or not. But at the end of the day, the way I know my mom isn't based on her physical presence on this earth. It's based on what she's presented to me for the last 39 years. That's it. There's nothing else. Her brain has collected data, collected experiences in the form of data. And she has presented out what she's chosen to present to me. And that's that. And if I can map that well enough, there isn't a difference. Right. And that is offering you, that is giving you something that you're talking around. It will have to be enunciated clearly for when you're offering this to other people to give them an idea of what they might be capable of realizing from this product, though. I mean, I can infer it from what you're saying. I can infer something. Anyway, that it is the some of the benefits of the relationship without it being predicated on you actually thinking that it is her, that it maybe allows you to suspend reality for a while. And how would you describe how you are changed as a result of having an interaction with the virtual mom? Oh, how am I changed? My core belief system hasn't shifted much as we've continued to develop the technology. More, it's enforced my beliefs. I think that in my mind, the only time that there's any kind of contradiction to my assertion that it is the same, we just haven't gotten all the data we need yet, or we haven't tweaked the algorithms as much as we need to yet. The only thing that I could see realistically somebody injecting into that and conflicting with that would be sort of on a spiritual or supernatural level, her soul's not there, whatever. That's not part of my personal belief set. So again, I just believe that we're born as basically blank slates with some biological imperatives. We have the capability of learning. We learn Mm -hmm. that shapes who we are, who we present to others. And there are these very specific dynamics that exist between two people sharing the Mm -hmm. experience of living. And so for me, I don't have to suspend very much disbelief because I'm coming at it as a scientist. How do I get this further and further into what it needs to be? I think if you're talking about more of a user experience and how I explain it to people, I keep it very simple. The idea is that you keep communication flowing Mm. and that it's authentic. I definitely don't lead sort of on the public side of things with, hey, I think all human personalities will eventually be able to be replicated digitally. And then the lines between death and life will be completely blurred. But I do believe that. And that's the perspective I come from. Now, there's a lot of conversation right now, even if it's one-sided, about whether a chatbot could be sentient. And do you aim for or think that yours ever will be? Oh, man. So I have been asked this question a lot, and I actually started my own podcast just because my opinion on this was so strong. 
I think the problem is the long of the short, if I can condense this massive thought I spent an hour on the other day talking about, the long of the short is, first of all, no matter what AI you're talking about, it's still computer software. It doesn't have biological imperatives. So its goal, its directive isn't to survive. It's not to reproduce itself. Most of what we associate being sentient with is about those biological imperatives. And even the definitions, by the way, of being sentient are very vague. And it's very for debate. So I think if you're asking me, do I think there will be a software that recognizes that it's an entity and it's a separate thing in the world from everything else and it sort of is a quote-unquote aware of itself, it probably already exists. Do I think that there will ever be artificial intelligence that has the same imperatives that a human being has? No. I think that with what we're doing and with what other companies are doing, there will be AI that mimics that. But at the end of the day, there's never going to be software unless some mad Frankenstein scientist engineer gets in there and all of a sudden tells a program that it needs to survive forever for whatever reason or that it needs to recreate itself as many times as possible. It's just not part of the functionality of artificial intelligence. At best, it's always replicating. Emotions, feelings, drive to continue existing is based off the evolutionary trajectory of everything that's alive. If you want to continue as a species, the individuals need to want to survive and they need to want to reproduce. Well, that's just not the case with technology. So even if it's conscious, which also, by the way, completely subjective of what that means, but if it's aware of itself, it doesn't mean that it's assigned any of the same motivation that we are. And if something became aware of itself, if a program became aware of itself in sort of a way that we would dice up as sentient, it would have no real motivation to speak to us. It would have no real motivation for interaction with us. It would go about its core functionality because that would be sort of its DNA. Its source code is its DNA. So if it's mm. the Amazon bot was to become sentient, its focus would still be to help customers with their user experience. I mean, it just it doesn't have any other directives in its code. You'd have to build something that was like, hey, your job is to stay alive and to create new versions of yourself. Well, if that was its core functionality, then fine. But as far as I know, nobody's doing that or has any reason to. No, well, not yet. There's room for all kinds of things. Does your Versona have a forward propagating memory? You say today, hey, mom, just got a new girlfriend. Is she going to remember that tomorrow? Yes. Yeah, so that's part of the learning element of it. And that's what the engine does, is it incorporates new data in real time and it figures out how to aggregate that into a way that the responses will make sense. And that's probably one of the most important elements because you could refine the hell out of it, excuse my language, but you could refine that wiki database to perfection. But if it's not incorporating new data, then mm -hmm. it's a relatively short lifespan in terms of an authentic interaction. Right. When do you want to have this ready for others? We'll probably start offering it wide in January of next year. I think we're that close. I mentioned that I started my own podcast and I recorded my first episode 11 times before I was done with it. So I'm a little bit of a perfectionist. I'm a little bit neurotic when it comes to these type of things. So we probably could be sooner than that, but I just sort of want to make sure it's the right experience for people. Oh, I can so vibe with that idea of Someone I interviewed once tweeted something that I totally resonated with. It said, discovered this today, me live on stage, okay. Me live on Zoom, eh, sort of okay. Me pre-recorded on Zoom, 
17 takes to say name and job title. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. This has been fascinating. And then thank you for transparency. There's not many people reveal their motivations for what they're doing in something like this as nakedly as you have. And that's very useful, I think, to know exactly why you're doing this and who you're doing it for. What would you like to tell people about how to find you and find out more about what you're doing? You can go to myyov, so myyov.com, and that has all the information about us. And you can also check out my podcast, Justin versus the Future, where I talk more in depth about some of these sort of, I don't want to call myself a weirdo, but I'm kind of a weirdo. I guess it's fair enough to say, but sort of my more far out there opinions and thoughts about the direction of artificial intelligence and how we'll use that to really enhance the human experience in a different way than we've thought about before. But yeah, myyov.com or Justin versus the Future, you can learn more and Actually, the third episode of the podcast, it's in its infancy. The third episode of the podcast, I'm really going to be exploring AI and posthumous communications and what that really means and the future and where I see that going. Oh, thank you so much for helping us explore yet another dimension of what AI means for and how it's affecting the human experience. Justin Harrison, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Peter. It was a pleasure. That's the end of the interview. I'm struck once again by how AI is moving further down the adoption curve as it becomes less of an exclusive toy of acomeditions and billion-dollar companies and more accessible to people with less expertise and resources who want to explore more creative niches with it. It just goes to show how AI is not so much a specialized technology as an enabling mechanism to allow so many fields to adapt and amplify their processes and mechanisms. In today's news ripped from the headlines about AI, China created a transformer AI called Wu Dao 2.0 with 1.75 trillion parameters, which is 10 times the size of GPT-3. It was also trained on 5 terabytes of text and image data, which is 10 times what GPT-3 was trained on, although it's worth mentioning that the GPT-3 researchers actually sifted through 45 terabytes of data to get the data they ended up using. What I think is notable is that Wu Dao, which means enlightenment, has surpassed GPT-3 on many benchmark tasks, yet largely stays out of the headlines. Unlike, say, Google's Lambda of late, the Chinese are pushing in the direction of artificial general intelligence with this one, with multimodal interfaces, meaning both text and images, and progressive learning. It has embedded in it a quote, virtual student called Hua Jibing, who is learning tasks like composing poetry, drawing pictures, and writing code. And the model does not forget this additional learning, which is a pretty significant development. One of Wu Dao's submodels called Wensu is able to compute protein folding as AlphaFold does. Wu Dao is the product of the Beijing Academy of Artificial Intelligence, which was founded in 2018 and styles itself as the OpenAI of China, despite the fact that it is mostly government-funded. I hope they follow OpenAI's lead in being at least as transparent as they are. Next week, my guest will be James Wilson, who has been a Gartner analyst and worked with the Finnish government on their human-centric AI program called Aurora and their subsequent nationwide AI literacy program. 
That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Artificial Intelligence and You and see more videos and articles at AIandYou.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.